Section 40 of The History of Chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lawrence Trask, Mount Vernon, Ohio, InterfaceAudio.com. The History of Chemistry by Thomas Thompson. Volume 2, Chapter 2 of the progress of philosophical chemistry in sweden part two when the reputation of bergman was at its height in the year seventeen seventy six frederick the great of prussia formed the wish to attach him to the academy of sciences of berlin and made him offers of such a nature that our professor hesitated for a short time as to whether he ought not to accept them his health had been injured by the assiduity with which he had devoted himself to the double duty of teaching and experimenting he might look for an alleviation of his ailments if not a complete recovery in the milder climate of prussia and he would be able to devote himself entirely to his academical duties but other considerations prevented him from acceding to this proposal tempting as it was the king of sweden had been his benefactor and it was intimated to him that his leaving the kingdom would afflict the monarch. This information induced him, without further hesitation, to refuse the proposal of the king of Prussia. He requested of the king, his master, not to make him lose the merit of his sacrifice by augmenting his income, but to this demand the king of Sweden very properly refused to accede. In the year 1771, Professor Bergman married a widow lady, Margaretha Katharina Trast, daughter of a clergyman in the neighborhood of Uppsala. By her he had two sons, but both of them died when infants. This lady survived her husband. The king of Sweden settled on her an annuity of two hundred rix dollars, on condition that she gave up the library and apparatus of her late husband to the Royal Society of Uppsala. Bergman's health had always been delicate. Indeed, he seems never to have completely recovered the effects of his first year's too intense study at Uppsala. He struggled on, however, with his ailments, and by way of relaxation was accustomed sometimes in summer to repair to the waters of Medivi, a celebrated mineral spring in Sweden, situated near the banks of the great inland lake, Wetter. One of these visits seems to have restored him to health for the time, but his malady returned in 1784 with redoubled violence. He was afflicted with hemorrhoids, and his daily loss of blood amounted to about six ounces. This constant drain soon exhausted him, and on the 8th of July, 1784, he died at the Baths of Medivi, to which he had repaired in hopes of again benefiting by these waters. The different tracts which he published, as they have been enumerated by Jelm, who gave an interesting account of Bergman to the Stockholm Academy in the year 1785, amount to 106. They have been all collected into six octavo volumes, entitled Apostula Torbini Bergman Physica et Chemica. With the exception of his notes on Scheffer, his Skyographia, and his chapter on physical geography, which was translated into French and published in the Journal des Mines, volume 3, number 15, page 55. His Sciagraphia, which is an attempt to arrange minerals according to their composition, was translated into English by Dr. Withering, 
His notes on Scheffer were interspersed in an edition of the Kamiska Ferroaznagar of that chemist, published in 1774, which he seems to have employed as a textbook in his lectures, or at all events the work was published for the use of the students of chemistry at Uppsala. There was a new edition of it published after Bergman's death in the year 1796, to which are appended Bergman's Tables of Affinities. The most important of Bergman's chemical papers were collected by himself and constitute the three first volumes of his Opscula. The three last volumes of that work were published after his death. The fourth volume was published at Leipzig in 1787 by Hebenstreet and contains the rest of his chemical papers. The fifth volume was given to the world in 1788 by the same editor. It contains three chemical papers, and the rest of it is made up with papers on natural history, electricity, and other branches of physics, which Bergman had published in the earlier part of his life. The same indefatigable editor published the sixth volume in 1790. It contains three astronomical papers, two chemical, and a long paper on the means of preventing any injurious effects from lightning. This was an oration, delivered before the Royal Academy of Sciences of Stockholm in 1764, probably at the time of his admission into the Academy. It would serve little purpose in the present state of chemical knowledge to give a minute analysis of Bergman's papers. To judge of their value, it would be necessary to compare them, not with our present chemical knowledge, but with the state of the science when his papers were published. A very short general view of his labors will be sufficient to convey an idea of the benefits which the science derived from them. 1. His first paper, entitled On the Aerial Acid, that is, Carbonic Acid, was published in 1774. In it, he gives the properties of this substance in considerable detail, shows that it possesses acid qualities, and that it is capable of combining with the bases and forming salts. What is very extraordinary, in giving an account of carbonate of lime and carbonate of magnesia, he never mentions the name of Dr. Black, though it is very unlikely that a controversy which had for years occupied the attention of chemists should have been unknown to him. Mr. Cavendish's name never once appears in the whole paper, though that philosopher had preceded him by seven or eight years. He informs us that he had made known his opinions respecting the nature of this substance to various foreign correspondents, among others Dr. Priestley, as early as the year 1770, and that Dr. Priestley had mentioned his views on the subject in a paper inserted in the Philosophical Transactions for 1772. Bergman found the specific gravity of carbonic acid gas rather higher than 1.5, that of air being 1. His result is not far from the truth. He obtained his gas by mixing calcareous spar with dilute sulfuric acid. He shows that this gas has a sour taste, that it reddens the infusion of litmus, and that it combines with bases. He gives figures of the apparatus which he used. This apparatus demands attention. Though far inferior to the contrivances of Priestley, it answered pretty well, enabling him to collect the gas and examine its properties. It is unnecessary to enter into any further details respecting this paper. Whoever will take the trouble to compare it with Cavendish's paper on the same subject 
will find that he had anticipated by that philosopher in a great many of his most important facts. Under these circumstances, I consider as singular his not taking any notice of Cavendish's previous labors. 2. His next paper, on the analysis of mineral waters, was first published in 1778, being the subject of a thesis supported by J. P. Scharenberg. This dissertation, which is of great length, is entitled to much praise. He lays therein the foundation of the mode of analyzing waters, such as is followed at present. He points out the use of different regions for detecting the presence of the various constituents in mineral water and then shows how the quantity of each is to be determined. It would be doing great injustice to Bergman to compare his analysis with those of any modern experimenter. At that time, the science was not in possession of any accurate analysis of the neutral salts which exist in mineral waters. Bergman undertook these necessary analysis, without which the determination of the saline constituents of mineral waters was out of the question. His determinations were not indeed accurate, but they were so much better than those that preceded them, and Bergman's character as an experimenter stood so high that they were long referred to as a standard by chemists. The first attempt to correct them was by Kirwan, but Bergman's superior reputation as a chemist enabled his results still to keep their ground till his character for accuracy was finally destroyed by the very accurate experiments which the discovery of the atomic theory rendered it necessary to make. These, when once they became generally known, were of course preferred, and Bergman's analysis were laid aside. It is a curious and humiliating fact, as it shows how much chemical reputation depends on situation or accidental circumstances, that Wenzel had in 1766, in his book on affinity, published much more accurate analysis of all these salts than Bergman's, analyses indeed which were almost perfectly correct, and which have scarcely been surpassed by the most careful ones of the present day. Yet these admirable experiments scarcely drew the attention of chemists, while the very inferior ones of Bergman were held up as models of perfection. 3. Bergman, not satisfied with pointing out the mode of analyzing mineral waters, attempted to imitate them artificially by the chemical processes, and published two essays on the subject. In the first, he showed the processes by which cold mineral waters might be imitated, and in the other, the mode of imitating hot mineral waters. The attempt was valuable and served to extend greatly the chemical knowledge of mineral waters and of the salts which they contain, but it was made at too early a period of the analytical art to approach perfection. A similar remark applies to his analysis of seawater. The water examined was brought by Sparman from a depth of 80 fathoms, near the latitude of the Canaries. Bergman found in it only common salt, muriate of magnesia, and sulfate of lime. His not having discovered the presence of sulfate of magnesia is a sufficient proof of the imperfection of his analytical methods. The other constituents exist in such small quantity in seawater that they might easily have been overlooked. But the quantity of sulfate of magnesia in seawater is considerable. 4. 
I shall pass over the paper on oxalic acid, which constituted the subject of a thesis supported in 1776 by John Afzelius Arfidson. It is now known that oxalic acid was discovered by Scheele, not by Bergman. It is impossible to say how many of the numerous facts stated in this thesis were ascertained by Scheele, and how many by Aphelius. For as Aphelius was already a magister docens in chemistry, there can be little doubt that he would himself ascertain the facts which were to constitute the foundation of his thesis. It is indeed now known that Bergman himself entrusted all the details of his experiments to his pupils. He was the contriver, while his pupils executed his plans. That Scheele has nowhere laid claim to a discovery of so much importance as that of oxalic acid, and that he allowed Bergman peaceably to bear away the whole credit, constitutes one of the most remarkable facts in the history of chemistry. Moreover, while it reflects so much credit on Scheele for modesty and forbearance, it seems to bear a little hard upon the character of Bergman. When he published the essay in his first volume of his Apuscula in 1779, why did he not in a note inform the world that Scheele was the true discoverer of this acid? Why did he allow the discovery to be universally assigned to him, without ever mentioning the true state of the case? All this appeared so contrary to the character of Bergman that I was disposed to doubt the truth of the statement, that Scheele was the discoverer of oxalic acid. When I was at Fallen, in the year 1812, I took an opportunity of putting the question to Assessor Gahn, who had been the intimate friend of Scheele, and the pupil, and afterward the friend of Bergman. He assured me that Scheele really was the discoverer of oxalic acid, and ascribed the omission of Bergman to inadvertence. Assessor Gahn showed me a volume of Scheele's letters to him, which he had bound up. They contained the history of all his chemical labors. I have little doubt that an account of oxalic acid would be found in these letters. If the son of Assessor Gahn, in whose possession these letters must now be, would take the trouble to inspect the volume in question, and to publish any notices respecting this acid which they may contain, he would confer an important favor on every person interested in the history of chemistry. 5. The dissertation on the manufacture of alum has been mentioned before. Bergman shows himself well acquainted with the processes followed, at least in Sweden, for making alum. He had no notion of the true constitution of alum, nor was that to be expected, as the discovery was thereby years later in being made. He thought that the reason why alum lays did not crystallize well was that they contained an excess of acid, and that the addition of potash gave them the property of crystallizing readily merely by saturating that excess of acid. Alum is a double salt, composed of three integrant particles of sulfate of alumina and one integrant particle of sulfate of potash, or sulfate of ammonia. In some cases, the alum contains all the requisite ingredients. This is the case with the ore at Tolfa, in the neighborhood of Rome. It seems also to be the case with respect to some of the alum ores in Sweden, particularly at Honsetter on Conicule in West Gothland, which I visited in 1812. If any confidence can be put in the statements of the manager of those works, no alkaline salt whatever is added. At least I understood him to say so when I put the question.
6. In his dissertation on Tartar emetic, he gives an interesting historical account of the salt and its uses. His notions respecting the antimonial preparations best fitted to form it are not accurate, nor indeed could they be expected to be so, till the nature and properties of the different oxides of antimony were accurately known. Antimony forms three oxides. Now it is the protoxide alone that is useful in medicine, and that enters into the composition of tartar emetic. The other two oxides are inert, or nearly so. Bergman was aware that tartar emetic is a double salt, and that its constituents are tartaric acid, potash, and oxide of antimony. But it was not possible, in 1773, when his dissertation was published, to have determined the true constituents of this salt by analysis. 7. Bergman's paper on magnesia was also a thesis defended in 1775 by Charles Norrell of West Gothland, who in all probability made the experiments described in the essay. In the introduction we have a history of the discovery of magnesia, and he mentions Dr. Black as the first person who accurately made out its peculiar chemical characters, and demonstrated that it differs from lime. This essay contains a pretty full and accurate account of the salts of magnesia, considering the state of chemistry at the time when it was published. There is no attempt to analyze any of the magnesian salts, but in his treatise on the analysis of mineral waters, he had stated the quantity of magnesia contained in 100 parts of several of them. 8. His paper on the shapes of crystals, published in 1773, contains the germ of the whole theory of crystallization afterwards developed by M. Howey. He shows how, from a very simple primary form of a mineral, other shapes may proceed, which seem to have no connection with or resemblance to the primary form. His view of the subject, so far as it goes, is the very same afterwards adopted by Howey, and what is very curious, Howey and Bergman form their theory from the very same crystalline shape of calcareous spar, from which, by mechanical divisions, the same rhombic nucleus was extracted by both. Nothing prevented Bergman from anticipating Howey but a sufficient quantity of crystals to apply his theory to. 9. In his paper on silica, he gives us a history of the progress of chemical knowledge respecting this substance. Its nature was first accurately pointed out by Pott, though Glauber and before him Van Helmont were acquainted with the liquor silicus, or the combination of silica and potash, which is soluble in water. Bergman gives a detailed account of its properties, but he does not suspect it to possess acid properties. This great discovery, which has thrown a new light upon mineral bodies and shown them all to be chemical combinations, was reserved for Mr. Smithson. 10. Bergman's experiments on the precious stones constitute the first rudiments of the method of analyzing stony bodies. His processes are very imperfect, and his apparatus but ill-adapted to the purpose. We need not be surprised, therefore, that the results of his analysis are extremely wide of the truth, yet if we study his processes, we shall find in them the rudiments of the very methods which we follow at present. The superiority of the modern analysis over those of Bergman 
must in a great measure be ascribed to the platinum vessels which we now employ, and to the superior purity of the substances which we use as regents in our analysis. The methods, too, are simplified and perfected, but we must not forget that this paper of Bergman's, imperfect as it is, constitutes the commencement of the art, and that fully as much genius and invention may be requisite to contrive the first rude processes, how imperfect soever they may be, as are required to bring these processes, when once invented, to a state of comparative perfection. The great step in analyzing minerals is to render them soluble in acids. Bergman first thought of the method for accomplishing this which is still followed, namely, fusing them or heating them to redness with an alkali or alkaline carbonate. End of section 40. Recording by Lawrence Trask, Mount Vernon, Ohio, interfaceaudio.com.